Welcome to the Let Me Be Free podcast. My name is Jackie. And my name is Alwyn. We're two sisters from Ireland living in Australia, navigating our healing journeys together. And this is our podcast, Let Me Be Free. We'll be interviewing everyone who's helped us to get us where we are today, whether that's therapists, loved ones, people from our Facebook group, Let Me Be Free, The Wounded Inner Child, or people who we've never met, but have had huge impacts on our lives. Follow along with us on this journey as we try to dissect what has really worked for us in the hopes that you too might be freed. Okay, hello everyone and welcome back to the Let Me Be Free podcast. Today I have Andrea from the um, Adult Child podcast. Um, I found her podcast because I actually searched um, the topic of scapegoating and and Andrea's podcast popped up. And so I had searched for scapegoating and I listened to the um, podcast episode with Andrea and I can't remember who it was that you were- It was probably Rebecca Manville. That's she's like the queen of the scape. She's the queen of the scapegoats. I called her. Yes, amazing. And I've been I've been following her ever since. And so um, I remember I listened to that, and it just really resonated with me so much. And I, I really liked your energy, the way that you shared. And so I started binging on um, your other episodes, and there was lots of stuff actually that I listened to in many of your episodes that I really resonated with. Um, but you know, I'd like to start off with what is an adult child? <laughs> Everybody, <laughs> everybody's an adult child. Um, okay, I'll give you a couple definitions. So the first definition comes from, so there's a 12-step program, adult children of alcoholic and dysfunctional families. Um, So their definition is an adult child is someone who responds to adult situations or life in general with self-doubt, self-blame, or a sense of being wrong or inferior, all of which was ingrained in childhood. Uh, Another way to say it is an adult child is someone who's unresolved childhood pain or trauma um, surfaces and plays out in adulthood and not in a good way. And the one thing that I want to say is, so when this, when this term first came about, it was in the late seventies, early eighties, the term was just initially adult children of alcoholics. And so what happened is I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of Al-Anon. Are you familiar with Al-Anon? Yeah. yeah. So basically what happened was like, there was, there was like a group of, they were, they were part of Alateen. And so these were kids that were growing up in an alcoholic family. And when they quote unquote graduated and started going to Al-Anon, they realized that they couldn't really relate as much because it was like people talking about, you know, their spouses. Um, and so they wanted to create their own meeting because they were just trying to like now live life, like after surviving, growing up in an alcoholic family. And what they realized was that regardless of the specific details of their childhood, that there were these common characteristics amongst them. And we can get into that, but, um, but so this was right around the same time that both like the medical and the mental health community was, was coming to terms with the fact that like alcoholism affects, you know, the entire family. But it was, it was less than 10 years later that they realized that an adult child was not, that other types of dysfunctional families could produce an adult child as well. So then that's when the term came adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families. I. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's it. Actually. I think when you say that, it's like, yeah, yeah, pretty much everyone. That's, I stare the same. You know, if I, if we talk about um, inner child or, you know, who has an inner child or, you know, I'm like, we all do. We are all essentially toddlers in adults' bodies or six-year-olds or seven-year-olds or whatever it is. And so, yeah, I, and I think the one thing that I say when people do say like, isn't every family dysfunctional? Every family encounters dysfunction from time to time. I would say what makes a family dysfunctional is more so how the family handles the, the dysfunction. So like a dysfunctional family is just going to like either, you know, flat out deny it or maybe they'll acknowledge it, but they won't resolve it. So you're just kind of living in this perpetual dysfunction. I love that. And I love that distinction. I think it's really important because it is really hard to, um, it's really hard, I guess, to, it's like, what everyone's dysfunctional. Why am I so special? Why are you so special? Well, you know, just get on with it. Just suck it up, move on. You know, why are you making such a big deal about it? But I guess that's the reality of people who go into that healing space and then people who don't. It's like, just pack up your shit. And just get on with it like the rest of the world. We are all in dysfunctional families, as you said, but what you said is so correct. It isn't about, you know, whether you are, everyone has some partial uh, dysfunction. No one gets out of childhood unscathed. That is the fair reality. Um, but as you said, it's how we deal with these, um, the adversity and the obstacles within our childhood or how we were helped, supported to deal with them. And um, There's so many factors. I think one of the things for me that I found in my trauma healing and with working with people, um, I'm a, co- a coach myself, is I find the most traumatic part of childhood is the isolation we experience because mm-hmm. of the trauma. It's when I work with clients, it's, you know, so many of them have sexual abuse or, or physical abuse, neglect, you know, um, alcoholics. There's a range. 
But always it comes back to the fact that not even about the, the child had experienced this traumatic event, but it was that they were left to deal with the intensity of the pain and the suffering and the emotions all by themselves. And, and I think that's what I found for me um, is the greatest pain that we suffer. And like you said, if we have someone to help navigate us through that, it really decreases the impact it has on us later in life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. One of the things that I'd love to chat to you about is, I guess, why I searched you in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. I know that you say this is something that we haven't really talked about. I don't actually haven't talked about even much in my group. Um, so there's the scapegoating and also um, you also term it as... Um, yes, I did by patient. And I love, um, I guess, having both labels because I would never have classed myself as the identified patient because I was never sick. I was never, you know, I know that many people um, either... The classic case is Munchausen syndrome, where they say that someone, a kid is sick, but they actually aren't sick. But it actually comes in so many other ways that I think is so hidden. And one of the actual factors that I found when I was healing through my own trauma, the reason, I guess, why I went so intensely and deeply into my own healing was because I was adversely affecting my children. And I could see mm-hmm. that. And it's when so I... Had, yes, it, it is. And when I had searched up scapegoating, I listened to a video by Teal Swan on scapegoating and I looked at it and I, I watched it and I was like, holy shit, I would never have said that I was scapegoated. Never. You know, I would have thought I, I, my perception was that I was a really good child. I was the perfect child. You know, I didn't kick off or I didn't do anything to cause, um, you know, any, uh, I guess, reaction. But when I watched that video, do you know what came to mind for me was, am I scapegoating my child? It was less about am I being scapegoated or was I scapegoated? And this real reality of, holy fucking shit I think I might be doing this to my own little child because he was the problem I had focused on him as being the problem the cause of all of my pain because he was essentially a mirror for all of my pain he was essentially acting the role of me he was a mirror of everything I did not want to see and so I put all of my anger and my blame and my hatred onto him because I perceived him his um, over-emotional reactivity, um, his constant um, misbehaving, he had to be the problem because he was doing all of the things that society said was bad. So I am putting all of that onto him. Rather than when I watched that video, I started searching, am I scapegoating my child? I couldn't find any information on it. But I know now that I was scapegoating him for without a shadow of a doubt. So I found out that my mom was an alcoholic when I was seven. Um, first of all, let me just say I'm an only child. And so... So I, so we were out to dinner one night and I could tell that my mom was upset and she had ordered a beer. We were waiting for my dad to get there. And I could tell she just like, wasn't really touching the beer. And so, um, when he got there, she started to cry. And then at a certain point she took me to the bathroom and I asked her what was wrong. And she said, I'm an alcoholic and I'm obviously seven. And I don't know what the hell (laughs) you know that means. And so I said, what does that mean? And she goes, it means that I can't drink. And as I said, like, I had no idea what an alcoholic was, but at the same time, like I knew exactly what an alcoholic was. And I feel like I went to bed that night and like woke up the next morning, like having skipped like several stages of development and really just developed this sixth sense when it came to my mom's drinking. I could feel it in my body hours before she would pick up a drink. And so the times that she drank the most was when my dad was out of town for work, which was often. And, um, you know, and so I, I, she was always there to put me to bed, pick me up. I mean, she drove me around drunk nothing ever horrible really, you know, ever really happened, but, um, yeah, I was parentified and that's like another term. Um, that I think, you know, is very relevant in this discussion, which is, you know, there's, there's physical uh, parentification where you're fo- forced to take on like the actual duties of a, of a parent. And then there's emotional parentification where essentially your, your, your family, your parents will cheat to fulfill their emotional um, needs. And that's what happened with my dad. So my mom's alcoholism was a secret from the rest of the world. Like it was our secret. And so he used me as his emotional support and confidant. And so when he was in town, you know, he was um, having me search the house for booze with him. Um, all just really, really inappropriate, but I found it all very exciting to be quite honest with you. And I think that that was just my way of dealing with the fear was to like, I mean, I literally would get like an adrenaline rush, just like sitting on the steps, listening to my parents fight. But, um, when I was nine, I developed separation anxiety with my mom. I woke up in the middle of the night one night, just like terrified, feeling like I was going to die. Um, and I started sleeping in her bed every night. And so after this went on for a while, my parents sent me to a therapist. And so this is kind of like where the identified patient part comes in um, for the separation anxiety. They sent me to see the, 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 the therapist. Now, granted, I, d- I d- obviously needed help. <laughs> you know, like there were definitely issues that warranted me being sent to a therapist. But the problem was like what they, you know, left out to the therapist. And many years later, I asked my mom, 
um, did you ever tell that therapist that you, you were an alcoholic and that you and dad uh, fought all the time? And, and her answer was, um, it didn't seem relevant. And I, and I, and I genuinely believe that that is, was true for her at that point. Like, I, you know, I don't think that they were making some sort of a malicious decision to not inform the therapist of that information, but that's just, you know, like subconsciously, yeah. you know, well, they you know, to. you know, coming from um, the mother. So say, for example, I am your mother in, in this case, I completely understand where she's coming from because when you are becoming an alcoholic or when you are in that space, you are doing mm -hmm. absolutely everything not to look at your own pain, look at your own uh, sorrow, your own shit. And so all you can do is focus on anything outside of you for the cause of that pain. If I fix something outside of me, then this will go away, this pain will go away. And so to acknowledge that she was an alcoholic and a part of the problem was it was just completely against the whole reason why you were needing to be sent to a therapist in the first place. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that happens a lot, you know, and I think that in today's day and age, I think hopefully a therapist would be able to pick up on that a little bit more, but it's interesting because it's like, I didn't bring it up to the therapist and it's not because I was never directly told like, you can't talk about this, but that was obviously the message that was modeled to me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, by, by sixth grade, I, I, you know, I, I eventually was back in my own bed. And by the sixth grade, I was like, I could go to sleepovers and stuff. And, um, but, but seventh grade is when I started to, you know, act out with, with drugs and alcohol. And, and that worked like in fixing the family, you know, like, I think that my separation anxiety, part of that is like us sounding the alarm bells, you know, me sounding the alarm bells that there's something not right here. And, um, it, but it didn't work. Right. Like it's, you know, my parents continued on, but when I started drinking and using drugs in the seventh grade, that worked. Like that worked in fixing the family and my mom stopped really drinking and my parents stopped fighting because they had to like come together to deal with me. And so from the age of 13 to 19, when I eventually got sober, you know, in and out of like three, three inpatient rehabs, six outpatient rehabs, boarding schools, everything. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was, I was the focus, you know, like I was the, I was the, the problem of the family. And as and then also too, what a big part of it too, was like in, in the seventh grade, you talked about the, the isolation piece, you know, in, in the seventh grade, I became the school slut and I became the girl that no one was allowed to be friends with, that no one wanted to be friends with. And I think the piece with like becoming the scapegoat and being the identified patient is like the toxic shame aspect. So like the internalized shame as our identity, you know, even if it's not directly said to us, but, um, you know, and then, and then that happened in the seventh. And so basically what I'm not sure if you've read, like healing the shame that binds us by John Bradshaw. Um, no, but he talks, yes, but I heard you talking about it. So yeah, I'll definitely give it a, give it a read. He talks about this moment, like what happens when shame becomes a child's identity and you go one of two ways, you go the shameless acting in route where you basically try to be perfect to avoid like any additional shame that was or, me. okay. And I went the other way, the shameful, uh, acting out uh, route, which is where you um, you lean into the shame and you yeah. act in ways that just perpetuates more than that, you know, more of the shame. And that's, and that's the route I took, you know, and, and when I, when I, in the seventh grade, you know, when I became the girl that no one was allowed to be friends with, like, I just, I just like leaned into it, you know, in a way. And, and uh, that, go ahead. Yeah, no, like I, I listened to that um, in your story. And I think it's so important to highlight that. So shameless acting in for me was, you know, I essentially just became this drill sergeant, this whipper. Like I would just tell myself constantly all day long, how horrible, how shit, how disgusting, how unworthy. It was like a toxic tar that I would repeat and pour all over myself because it was the only way that I could whip myself into shape and be acceptable mm -hmm. and lovable and worthy and not being abandoned by my mother, my family, whatever. And, you know, I was very, I always remember being quite suicidal because my internal world was so toxic. Um, and are you talking about during childhood? Yes, mostly childhood. Yeah. 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 Uh, oh no, well, well that led into my adult. I know, I know, obviously, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. And then the other side for me was the food. You know, like I would just think about food all day long from the moment I woke up. It went from eating, wanting to eat, uh, binging, and then just constant self-hatred, self-loathing of my body. I would just pull at my body. I would look in the mirror. It was just constant disgust. I just essentially poured, turned all that shameless shame in towards myself and had that deep self-loathing, self-hatred. So then the shameful acting out. I know a lot of my clients actually have definitely experienced this. And it is so important to talk about this because um, the pain and the suffering that comes 
from when you act out in childhood, teenage years. It's like, you know, these thought patterns and the narrative, you should have known better. You were older, all this shit that is absolute complete bullshit. You didn't know better. You couldn't have done better. You were trying to act out the pain that was within you. And there's no shame about that. But I would love if you could just talk a bit more on that because there's so many people that to this day are still having that two by four that they're whacking the shit of themselves you know, for doing the thing that they did when they didn't know and couldn't do any better. But I didn't have that experience because I was shameful acting in or whatever. Yeah. So I'll say like when you're talking about just like that, that self-hatred that you felt in the, the negative like self-talk, like if I reflect back, I didn't experience that, but because I had to be intoxicated 24 seven, you know what I mean? Um, and in another way that it really showed up for me too, when I talk about the, sh the shameful acting out, Part of it was, I mean, I was completely incapable of having friends because I was just a, like, I, I got that label. I'm the girl that no one wants to be friends with. And so now I'm going to act accordingly to that. And I'm not even going to give you a chance to reject me, you know? Um, and so, and then the way that it really showed up for me in adulthood, like when we, when we talk about like scapegoats, especially in romantic relationships, right? Like I continue to find myself in relationships with you know, people who kept me a secret, you mm. know, who really didn't want to be in a relationship with me. And that was just reaffirming that poor belief that I'm something to be ashamed of. Yeah. You know, and it really was not, I, I did not have that on a conscious level, like, you yeah. know, at all. Um, but what I can say about that is like, it's everything. Like I, I'm so grateful for all of those things. Like, all of the things that I can look back that like one might cringe over, whether it's in during childhood or before I really started doing this adult child work or before I got sober, like I'm so fucking grateful, like for all of that, because it shaped me into who I am today. You know, yeah. like I'm so grateful for, for all of those um, experiences. And I, I know that it's not because of who I inherently was, you know, yeah. like I, I was just trying to survive. But it takes so such great strength and resiliency um, and determination to allow yourself to move from that place of cringeworthy, I am inherently shameful, um, to where you are now. Like, I know that the feeling of shame, uh, to, you, can't, you can't bypass it. You have to acknowledge and really re-experience and allow yourself to move through those traumatic, shameful experiences to get to where you are today. And it's in this space where you're like, I understand now. I can see it from this vantage point. But before you um, had that uh, ability and that courage to move through it, you know, I'm sure that, you know, you didn't want to face it. You didn't want to look at it or acknowledge it. It's like, yes and no. Like, I, I feel like once, and granted, I'm still healing, right? There's still fucking shit that needs to be healed. That's scary as fuck. Um, so in that respect, yeah. But, but a lot of it, like, I think, I think perhaps like one thing that really helped me is because I was the identified patient. So like I was used to talking about these things, you know, and yeah. then also too, getting sober, you know, I got sober at, at 19. And so, you know, even though I would then hit my like adult child bottom, like I didn't realize I had trauma at the time, but, you know, through AA and, and realizing that I suffer from, I'm very aware that I suffer from a disease, you know, the disease of alcoholism. So I guess just having that understanding, you know, allows me to, to see, um, you know, to, to, to depersonalize it. And yeah. I think also what it too, is just when you look back on when you're able to see just like the divine purpose in all of your pain, yeah. um, you know, it's, I'll tell you one thing though, that like, I feel a shitload of shit. Here's a piece that still needs to be healed and has been going on is money stuff. So, so while I was like in my active adult child, I feel like I should just say, so people like understand, you know, so I, yeah. so I got sober. And then for the next nine years, I like kept finding myself in one toxic relationship after the other, after the other, with like no fucking clue, like why this kept happening to me. Like, I did not understand it. Like I kept, I would take long periods off in between relationships. I would feel really good about myself. I would be confident that I was going to do things differently in the next relationship. And without fail, I kept finding myself in the same situation over and over and over again. And I had no idea that it was about my childhood because one, like I had always been able to talk about it, yeah. like without getting upset. And so I thought that that meant that it didn't impact me. But what I realized is like, I was like a fucking newscaster, like reporting, like on a house burning down behind me, but it's actually my house, you know, yeah. like, but just like being so emotionally disconnected from it. So like that, that was part of it. It was like, you know, I, I knew my childhood was less than ideal, you know, but I also knew that others had a lot worse. 
Um, my parents never told me I was a piece of shit. My parents never beat me, you know, all of those things. So like truly how bad could it have been? I had no idea that I was suffering from complex PTSD. Um, but so while I'm kind of in this active, like adult child disease, I start acting out like reckless, recklessly financially. And it wasn't me going on, um, lavish vacations or, you know, shopping sprees, but just like not paying attention to like how much money I'm spending and like going out to eat all the time, like ordering takeout when there's food in the fridge, taking like Ubers and lifts everywhere when I could have walked, you know, or taken the bus. And I just created this shitstorm of debt. And then I like took a credit card out to like pay it off or like a loan out to pay it off. I didn't change my behavior, like racked up more debt. And like, before you know it, I'm like fucking three loans deep, you know? And that has been something that I have had a really hard time, like confronting the level of fear that I feel around that is like next level, this, the amount of shame. So when I tell you, I will tell you all my cringeworthy dating stories or my drinking, but like the money stuff, I don't want you to fucking know about that. I don't want anybody to know about that. And that's largely because of how I was raised, where I was taught that like money is the most important thing, you know, and if you are financially irresponsible, you're a bad person. And just the, the energy around money in my home growing up, it was like alcohol and money. Like those were just the, the, um, the, the really charged topics. And so I would say about a year ago was when I kind of got to the point where I'm like, all right, it's like, let's, let's face this stuff. Like let's face this money stuff and started going to debtors anonymous. And, um, but I keep dipping my toe in. I've stopped creating wreckage, but I, I'm not doing enough to like get myself out of it. And yeah. it's a lot of resistance. Um, I don't know if it's because I still haven't like fully conceded that this is something that I'm powerless over, you know, or is it just like, it's whatever's lying underneath that is just so fucking scary and painful. Um, oh, but no. I love you talking about this. I love it. I'm not hanging on to every word that you say because I hear you. Like, you know, my, my shame was all about food. I would shame myself over food all day long. And, you know, obviously there's all the rest of the traumatic stuff. But, um, you know, it's interesting because as I've shifted the shame around food, up comes the shame about money. And, you know, I'd love to, yeah, even just bounce, it, bounce off each other a bit because, you know, for me, I've just found it, you know, I have a very stable husband, you know, he has always been a saver. He's always had, you know, that financial, um, so he's always been that financial support. But for me, I'm literally like, I can spend it. I need to spend it as quick as it comes in. You know, if any money is in my account, it needs to be out of my account as soon as possible. And it's like, I'm a fucking grown adult. Like, and I love that. And um, what I actually heard your money um, podcast that you did with. Was, oh, with it. Which um, one was oh, in the in the beginning. Oh, yeah, Ben Rimmelauer. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, so I had that one, but then I ended up. I did a solo episode last summer on money, like and this stuff. And I mean, that is truly like the only time I've ever like felt fucking vulnerable on my podcast. Like, like I say, like I air it all out. Like I will tell you everything. And that episode was so fucking scary for me. But go ahead. I'm gonna check that one out next for sure. But yeah, like, you know, I, I just find that recently, you know, one of the things that I absolutely love from listening to your podcast is people always talk about debt and, and um, you know, spending on fancy things. I was like, I am not materialistic at all. Like, you know, I don't buy myself clothes, shoes. I don't buy myself anything. But what is it, food? Food. Eating out, coffees, um, buying some stuff for the kids. But like, even for the kids, I wouldn't buy them nice clothes, nothing like that. But you know what? I don't even know what I'm spending money on. And I honestly don't even know if I'm spending money. But what I can't, and lose or shake is the shame it's like the way i feel about money it's as if i'm spending going out buying fucking ferraris and i don't even spend that much money like i i am not materialistic yet the shame still feels quite intense around money like either i can't make it or i don't want it and like you i'm like i don't even know if i want to touch it i don't even know if i want to look at that that, that so yeah well here's another thing for me too is like to tie this into the scapegoat discussion is like, I, I feel like it's in a way keeping me in that role in a sense. And it's, and it's also, it is, I don't know subconsciously if it's a way for me to stay connected to my parents, you know, like, is it, is it a way to, because I, you know, they still help me, you know, I'm not, I'm not completely financially independent. And that's kind of like 
I've done so much work in my relationship, you know, with them, but that's really kind of the final string. Um, and so fascinating because as you're saying that I'm actually thinking, ah, like I have done so much work and I'm so independent yet I still need to depend on my husband for money. Do you get me? Like, it's like, I'm afraid to cut that tie to take my own interdependence and make all the money and be responsible for my own money because of what, what am I afraid? Am I afraid of losing that relationship? Like, I feel like when you said that, it really just kind of pulled a cord with me where, huh, that does, you know, that does make sense. You know, um, do you feel like, but do you feel like, um, that your husband, um, like he, that he needs to feel like he's helping you. Like, do you feel that way? Yeah. Like I, I think that, you know, my husband's always been, when I met him, I was severely traumatized. Um, and I was looking for my knight in shining armor, you know, and, um, he was this person who had money and he had his own house. And honestly, he was a foreign entity to me. I never met anyone who didn't live paycheck to paycheck. I never met anyone who had any type of house or anything, especially that was theirs. Um, and he was just so responsible. And so, you know, when I met him, he was very much that um, nurturing caretaker. He essentially became what I never had, which was he took care of me. Like I remember in the early years, one of the things that he said to me was, he'd said about a shower, his, he, his mom had a really lovely house. And he had said about something about a shower and that's, oh my God, I love that you have a shower, you know, because we never had a shower, we only had the hose. And he was like, you know, when we move in together, babe, I'm going to have three showers in the house so that you never have to worry about, you know, not having um, a shower again. And it was that kind of like, for the mm. first time in my life, I felt like someone was going to love me. Someone was going mm. to take care of me. And I mm. think maybe my inner child is afraid that if I cut that cord and become independent myself, that one, either maybe he won't feel like he's needed anymore because I know that, that, that he has that role. He's always felt, um, that's always been a big part of our relationship, that he has been the one to take care of me financially. Um, and obviously I had my role where I was the caretaker of him emotionally. I was, you know, the, 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 that other side. But, you know, it's like, he's, we've always had this dynamic. This is, this is how it worked for us, you know, that I was the one who couldn't keep money and he was the one, he would always give me, buy me stuff. Like he would buy me, you know, he would give me money to go shopping. That was his love language. And, you know, I wonder if there is that part of me that just, that little child within me that just doesn't want to let go of that, that father figure nearly that I find in my husband. You know, we're always trying to recreate that exactly. narrative. Exactly. It's, it's keeping us in that child role, you know? And for you, you know, when you look at it that way, if you have always had this relational dynamic with your parents that, you know, you were their sole focus, that they had to caretake for you, but who are you? Do you have any importance to them? Do you even exist if you aren't something that they can fix? Do mm -hmm. you even, are you worthy of any love, attention, or um, just being anything to them if they can't focus attention on you you know because so many of us and even my kids and lots of lots of children and even this generation they only feel seen when they need something when they're sick or when they're acting out well none of us very rarely have ever felt seen just mm -hmm. for being us you know just for existing yeah it's um it's spot on it's you know but but it's so insidious right because like i want nothing more than to be financially independent you know but i think there's the parts of us that's the reality oh exactly. we, yeah. we are talking here i'm hi i'm adult self alwyn or i'm alwyn this part of me is the the podcastor and i'm talking mm -hmm. to andrea the podcaster but let's mm -hmm. pull out you know andrea the, alwyn, the wounded mm -hmm. child and we're going to have a very different conversation you know and i guess that's it you know when we talk about the self-sabotage and all of those different elements really that's just the self-sabotage is about keeping us in that space of where we feel safe where we feel connected that's all we want in life is to feel loved, connected, nurtured. And if we don't feel like we're going to get that, if we feel like we're going to be abandoned by, you know, cutting that cord, why the fuck would we do it? You know, it's too terrifying to be out there alone on the sea, drifting around without that anchor of um, whoever we've hooked that anchor onto. But the reality is, is we are grown women who want to feel like we are our own anchor and that we are able to stand on our own two feet. But that takes us and being able to hold space for the little child within us that's like, no, I need to keep that relationship. I need to keep this dynamic because I'm afraid of what might happen if we don't. It's, it's really fucking charged. It's like the yeah. final, it's like the last really big piece for me that needs to be healed. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, 
I wanted to just, if you don't mind, I'd love to just call you back because I'm really intrigued. So the time when you went to the um, restaurant and your mom had the drink and you, um, you went into the bathroom, I believe that we all have these turning points. I remember mine was six. I was sent away to be a flower girl. Um, and I was really excited because I had never been a flower girl. We were very poor. And so the idea of getting to wear a dress was really special. Oh, in a wedding. In a wedding, yeah. And so I was sent away to be a flower girl, but it wasn't. It was a ruse for me to be sexually abused. Um, and so I had remembered, I shut that out. So that was my amnesia. Like I would, to be honest, I didn't remember a lot of my childhood. Uh, pretty much most of it was, was, um, was under, under the surface. But I remember going to be a flower girl. And I always had this memory of coming back from being a flower girl. And I remember splitting. I remember making this decision about myself and about my life that I am never going to be loved or accepted. I'm never going to be safe. And so I need to become something else, someone else right now. And so I remembered this nearly breaking part of my psyche, you know, the before that day and the after that day, you know. And so it feels like maybe in the restaurant, was that a possibility? Because it seemed like such a pinnacle time for you. And you woke up the next day so different. What happened for you in that restaurant? That What, what was happening within your mind? Do you remember that might have created no. that shift? No, but it just is etched in my, it's etched in my memory, you know, it's like, that that was it like there was life before that moment and there was life after that moment and so you know if you can if you don't mind if you mm -hmm. would be in that moment is there anything that comes to mind for you that was the probably I guess the most the thought pattern that would have come into your mind um was it the was it the confiding of your mom was it the was it the the word alcoholic it was what? I mean I think it was just that there was something wrong with my mom okay you know? And so she in was, that moment, she was the most amazing mom ever, you know, like she, that's the thing too, is like, you know, when she wasn't drinking, she was like, just the most amazing mom. Um, and she, she was more of a binge drinker. Um, but there was also like this defining moment too, when I talked about the, um, when I talked about the separation anxiety. So, and having that experience of like waking up in the middle of the night, just like with a sheer terror, um, you know, prior to that experience one night when. Uh, so whenever my dad was out of town, I would fall asleep in my own bed. And then in the middle of the night, I would go, then hey, come here, Kiki. Come. I would go, um, my kitty, um, I would go spend the rest of the night in, in her bed. And it was like kind of fun. It was like a sleepover. Like I liked when dad was out of town and there was one night where I woke up and I walked into her room and the lights were all on and the bed was still made. And I went downstairs and she had, she had passed out drunk on the couch. And so I had to then, you know, carry her, like help her up the stairs. And I just remember, you know, just like hysterically crying. Um, and so that was like a, that was a big moment, you know? That like, must have been so, so terrifying because obviously at that age, you weren't to know whether she was alive or not. Like there was probably some conscious awareness that, you know, this might've happened before and she's drunk, but as a child, you know, it's very hard to conceptualize when someone is passed out, the person that you need to support you and be there for you is passed out on the floor. And you have that responsibility to then take her and get her to safety. Um, mm -hmm. That very, you know, I'm sure that, again, so many thought patterns, so many um, belief systems were born. Who do I need to be? What do I need to become in order to stop? Well, I, had to, I thought she was going to die if I wasn't there, right? Because, like, you know, at that point, it was, I was able to go to sleepovers prior to that. And it was after that point, like, I was always the kid that always got, you know, sick right before it was time to go to bed, you know? Yeah. I had to call mom. Um, and that feeling, maybe that feeling that just feeling like I was going to die. I mean, that was how I realized that I was an adult child. I, you know, I, I was dating this guy from less than a month, <laughs> Brian number one, if everyone needs to listen to my very first episode, which is called the tale of two Brian's where I dated two alcoholics and Brian back to back that were like my adult child bottom. Um, but so I, Brian number one, you know, I dated this guy for less than a month. I dated this guy for less than a month. Got it. Um, and he ghosts me. And, and he was definitely an alcoholic. Like that was definitely like <laughs> known on the first date probably. Um, but so he ghosts me and I literally became a non-functioning human. Uh, I couldn't go to work. Uh, my mom had to fly out to California from Florida to come and take care of me. And I wasn't suicidal, but I definitely thought like, if this is what life is like at seven years sober, like what the fuck is the point, you know? And it was in the midst of that experience that I had two of the most pivotal aha moments of my entire life. One was, there's no way that the way that I'm feeling right now could actually be about this guy. You know, like if it's hysterical, it's historical. I'd known this person for less than a month and he was clearly an alcoholic. 
and I just wanted to fucking die. Like that's not, that doesn't match. And then yes. the second call was, this is a feeling that I felt often as a child. And I realized that that was the exact feeling that I felt for the first time when I woke up, you know, in the middle of the night, just terrified, like yeah. needing to sleep with my mom. Do you know what's really interesting? And I'd love to get your perception and your take on it. I had a friend who um, her mom was an alcoholic. And um, when her mom wasn't drinking, it was as if her mom was actually there. She was present. But when her mom was drinking, she felt abandoned. She felt like she was so alone. And she hated the alcohol for that reason. She just resented the drink and the alcohol so much because she felt so deeply alone and so deeply abandoned when her mom was drinking because her mom was no longer there anymore. She was in a different place. Mm -hmm. Was that yeah, so, your experience? Uh, no, there was not like, um, there was not like a, a resentment towards the alcohol. Um, it, but, but that's just it, right? Like that's the, that's like the abandonment that I experienced, right? Cause it's like at the drop of the hat, she became no longer present to me, you know, like she was, she was no longer there for me. And, um, it, it, you know, I, I guess you could say I did resent it a little bit in the sense that like my dad taught me, like I said, like to help him search the house for boots, you know? And so even when he was out of town, you know, like a little girl, like, and I just remember, I just remember like standing in the kitchen, just like screaming at my mom at the top of my lungs, like, I don't know, eight, 10, um, pouring, pouring her boots down the drain, you know? And I, I, um, I never said that I was never going to drink, but I, I get, I don't even know if I had the thought, like, I'm just not going to be like my mom. Like, I don't, I don't yeah. know. Um, but I went, so she finally, for the first time, she, um, cause it was like several years of like, you know, we acknowledge that there's a problem here, but we're not like really doing anything about it. You know, she would not drink for, I don't know, several months and then have an episode. But so when I was in the sixth grade, when I was 12 was the first time that she actually like started going to AA meetings and went to uh, an outpatient rehab. And so I went to one of her meetings with her. I think she was like getting 90 days sober or something. And it was an open meeting, which means that like you, anybody can share like closed meetings are where, you know, you're only allowed to share in the meeting if like you identify as an alcoholic. But in an open meeting, anyone can share. And I raised my hand and I said, hi, I'm Andrea, and I don't want to be an alcoholic. And I literally was in rehab like the first time less than two years later. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it just did, I mean, it just did the trick, you know, like, I just had to fucking numb out. And I, what, what I will share is like, you know, once I got sober, it was just my, my parents picked up where they left off. You know, like they, my mom, you know, I don't even know, they're both alcoholics now. Uh, I don't know how my mom is even alive. She has fallen downstairs and broken ribs. She fell down the stairs in October and broke her heel. Um, and, and my dad has, you know, become an alcoholic. And um, it's, the, it's, they're so sick. Like they're so sick. And when I really started working on these issues, like I stopped participating in in the dysfunction, like I once did, you know, like I, for years, I was convinced that there was my, my mom was going to get sober one day. Like I was convinced that finally she would get sober. And I was convinced that, that there was something that I could do or say, you know, to, to make that happen. And, you know, I, I realized one day something had happened. I like was screaming at her on the phone and then I got off and was like, you know, I felt like shit and nothing, you know, like there, there's nothing that I can do. Like, this isn't going to change the, you know, the experience at all for her. And so then I had to really just put some really, really, really firm, um, you know, boundaries in place and telling my dad that, you know, he can't call me. He, he would always call me like with whatever the story was, you know, like with whatever thing happened with mom, he would just call me up and I had to tell him to stop, um, to stop doing that and, um, really just stop participating and like playing the role that I always had played. And, you know, what happened as a result of that, and which is a very common experience is that they lashed out at me essentially, you know, like they were trying to like punish me mm -hmm. um, because I was not, I mean, it's not that I was, I wasn't, um, I wasn't participating, but I also wasn't like going to live in the denial either. Yeah. So it's like, I'm not going to like try to take the elephant out of the room, but like, I'm going to acknowledge that there's an elephant in the room, yeah. you know? And so, you know, they really, really, really lashed out at me. Um, they even like, even one time like overnight like changed the locks on all of the doors in one of their houses and like told me that I was no longer welcome there anymore and it was really fucking painful and this is a really 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 common experience luckily you know over time I think they've realized that like if they want to have a relationship with me that you know they, they can't do that shit 
But yeah. that's what it's all about. It's like keeping dysfunction alive and thriving, you know, yeah. like keep back the status quo. And I know that like, I, and I know that they love me, you know, I know they're not bad people. They're just really, really, really sick people. And it's really, it's really sad. And it's, I've figured out a way to have a relationship with them that like, you know, works for me. Um, wow. It's really, it's, but, it's you know, everyone's so, everyone's so individualized. I think like, um, you know, with regards to relationships and calling contact, you know, there's no, there's no um, one answer that fits everyone. And I think that, you know, in the healing realm, we all sometimes I feel like we're so quick to um, give our opinion on what is the right way to do it, what's the wrong way to do it, you know, put contact with all toxic people. It doesn't always work like that. You know, and I, I don't think everyone has to do that. But um, for me, that's the way it worked for me. Um, you know, uh, my siblings, I absolutely love my siblings. I love them. But my choice and my sister's choice, both of us, so both of us had repressed memories come up at the same time. So both of our choice was um, if you can't acknowledge the truth of what happened, then I love you, but I can't have a relationship with you because I won't and can't um, have a conversation or a relationship where we are not acknowledging the gigantic elephant in the room. You know, it just isn't working and it won't work for me. And also it just re-traumatized me more. Every time I tried to keep that relationship alive, I felt it was just too damaging for my inner child when there was no acknowledgement of this gigantic elephant. And also I was severely suicidal at the time. Um, I was so aggressive with my kids. I was in absolute hell. But it was like, I also couldn't really acknowledge or talk about that because the reason for that hell was our parents who they weren't acknowledging had any impact. And so I got to the point where as much as I absolutely love my siblings, it wasn't going to do either of us any good to stay in um, contact. Um, I got contact with my yeah. parents. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think that that's like a lot of people that's absolutely necessary. You know, like there are a lot of, I've had periods of time. There, I, I didn't speak to my dad for a year at one point. Um, but I think that it's, it's absolutely necessary, especially like to heal. Like if you're still really wrapped up in that, I think that like we can take a break, you know, and, and do the work on ourselves and then like revisit it down the road, you know, cause you know, through the work that I've done, you know, I've been able to, to figure out how to, you know, to, to make that work. But for some people that's not, you know, a, a possibility, but I think it's important to like recognize that like, it's not, you don't, you don't have to make like a lifetime decision. You know what I mean? Yes. It's just like, just you can change your mind and you know maybe just for today it's you know it's more harmful than exactly beneficial. yeah and I think that's trauma though with us who have CPTSD well um, my sister and I really acknowledge is that life is very black and white for CPTSD survivors you know it's like there's no gray area of things can be okay no it's either catastrophe or trauma or good or bad as children we really had to you know put things into categories and into boxes to make sense of the world you know there was good mom and there was bad mom there was good dad, there was good bad dad, you know, and that's, that's the way I categorized my life. There was good things, there was bad things. And so for me, you know, it was just so fascinating because I'd only ever retained good dad and good mom, you know, they were all I retained. The only box that I kept within my conscious awareness was the good aspects of them, which was what helped me to survive. And I'm so grateful for that. You know, I'm, I'm so grateful that I repressed and suppressed all of my memories because I wouldn't have gotten to this point if I had to relive the trauma and the helplessness and the powerlessness that I felt every single day um, living in that house. I actually, I interviewed a, um, a therapist about, um, about this as well. He's um, on YouTube. He's, he's like psychology in Seattle. He's great but he specializes in, you know, in borderline and stuff. And, and what he said about it, it's like, it, it really doesn't matter. Um, like what you, you know, diagnose it. It's really just how it's treated. Right. Cause like we're yeah. treating, we're treating like the symptoms, you know? And so he's like, if somebody wants to, you know, like define themselves as having like, you know, borderline or complex PTSD, like it, it really, really doesn't matter. And I think that, you know, he said that, you know, people can just get really, really fixated on the label, you yeah, know? Definitely. I mean, my sister did a podcast on that. We talked about that in one of our podcast episodes, discussing about labels because it's really important. Like, you know, for both of us, if you become too fixated on it, it can be very detrimental to your healing because you're then not focusing on what's really important, which is the why you're actually the symptoms because it's the symptoms. It's essentially the whatever label you have is just a symptom of childhood trauma or CPTSD. And so, yes, definitely agree with that. But then sometimes both of us agree that it's actually helpful to have an idea mm -hmm. of what you're experiencing. And the reason why I especially um, find understanding BPD, say BPD for me, so that was so transformation in my healing was my childhood brain could not conceptualize or understand what happened in my childhood. Mm -hmm. My mom being bad and then being good and having no conscious awareness of when she was bad, it fucked my brain up so much. Like it made me feel like I was insane. 
because I couldn't understand how two people could be in one body. It made no sense to me. And so once I, when I started doing it myself to my own children, that mm -hmm. was when I started really freaking out. I was like, okay, I think I need to be signed into a mental institute. There is something deeply wrong with me. I have my mom's illness and I need to be kept away from my children because where the difference was, was where, where my mom was completely switching, you know, mm. she had no conscious awareness that she had switched from this bad part to this good part. My greatest fear was I was doing that. My greatest fear was that I was actually switching, hurting my kids, and I wasn't aware of it. I was going to become her. And so when I became aware of BPD, and that's what I experienced in my childhood with my mom, then I was able to understand that what I was experiencing wasn't the same. Yes, it was a variation mm -hmm. of it, but when I was getting aggressive with my kids, I was at the back of consciousness telling mm -hmm. myself to stop. I didn't actually switch out. I wasn't completely blacked out. I didn't black out fully, whereas a lot of people with BPD black out and another part takes over. And so I didn't black out fully. I was still consciously aware because I wouldn't allow that part of me to have full reign with my children the way my mother did. So that's the only reason I say that BPD was helpful for me helpful. because it actually gave me that understanding to realize that I didn't need to be signed into a mental institute, <laughs> essentially. Mm. But well, that's, I mean, that's how I felt about, um, you know, realizing that I was an adult child. Same, same experience for me too. Like there was just like such great relief in, in realizing that, you know, I think with the, the, um, the issue is with this is like, just, I, I think it's with social media um, and everyone having this like, dire like desire for attention you know and i think that there's a lot of people out there like you know on tiktok and shit like pretending like they have these mental disorders that they you know they don't really have and that really takes away from the people who actually do have it you know but you know what though even those people those people are suffering no Clearly. Person, no that's very true very true no, no person who has had a stable upbringing and childhood would want to do that exactly. and so if a person is saying that they have bpd and they actually don't they need a lot of support and love because there's obviously something that they're struggling with that they need support with. You know, now obviously it's not great. It's not ideal because, you know, people might get misinformation. So there's on the mm -hmm. spectrum of healing, we need to allow for all possibilities. We need to allow for everyone to have their place. And really we need to stop the judgment of what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad. And just recognize that all is pain, whether you're in pain or you're not in pain, whether you are needing support or not support. And if we can, you know, because like you said, sometimes when we get into the labels, we can start these fights about, you know, what label I have, my label's worse than yours. It, it can get really messy and really toxic. But if we can bring it back to even the person who's bloody gaslighting people about their labels, again, another person who's suffering, another person who's struggling. And if we can see beyond their um, the gaslighting or whatever, it's, it's just, it's all messy. And it's all um, complex, but really all we are is just a bunch of people that are, as you said, idle children who are suffering, that need support, help and love and kindness and to find our way through. But yeah, the, the, I guess the, the issue is like, if they're influenced, like what, like what are the, what sort of influence are they having on other people? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's also yeah, kind definitely. of a tricky spot because people are so like impressionable too, you know? But you're going to find that across the board with everything. We yeah, I just think social media just takes it yeah. to a next level. You know what I mean? Like it yes. just it just changes the ball game. Yeah, definitely. And you know, I also think if we look at like say the universal and uh, everything happens for a reason, they have their place. They must be there must be something in it for people. Uh, maybe the people who watch that stuff, maybe their lesson is about discernment. Maybe their lesson is to learn discernment. Do you get me? And to exactly. realize to realize what is um what is right and what is uh what's truth for them and what's not truth. And maybe that's the lesson that they need to learn that by watching these people who actually aren't authentic. Huh, uh huh there's something not right about this wait this is a lesson for me in, in um in authentic in discernment in helping me to navigate what well, in childhood we are all gaslit you know we're all told that what isn't happening is happening what what we feel we don't feel and so uh -huh. all of us i feel like we're all having to rewire our own discernment or learn what is our gut intuition what's right what's wrong and to step into our own power and our own truth mm -hmm. absolutely i 100 percent agree it's um yeah it's Everyone's fucked up. <laughs> mm. and I think, you know? like, I think, yeah, I think that it's just, you know, I love that we're creating and having these conversations. I don't think anything should be off topic because the more that we talk about these things and the more that we hash these things out, the more that we'll be able to um, realize no one's fucking right. No one's fucking wrong. It really doesn't matter who's right or wrong anyways. All that matters is that each of us individually get to live the life that we deserve and the life that we want. If we stop worrying about everyone else in the world, everything else outside of us and keep on bringing it back to the self. I, my biggest like kind of teaching is I'm no one's guru. I do not have all the answers. I know a lot of shit because I've been through a lot and I should have died many times. 
But it still doesn't mean I know what you need or what the next person needs. You have the answers within you. You are the only guru of your own life. I can help you to try and navigate and find the path for you, maybe. Or maybe not. Maybe I'm not the right person for you. But you are your own guru. No one out there has all the answers. No one out there is some spiritual higher power shit that's going to bring you to where you need to go. Once you recognize your own power, then you'll be on the right path. Yeah, because there's no one path to healing, you know? No. Everyone's own journey. And we just have to, you know, figure out what, what works for us, you know? Yeah. And so, so finish- sorry, go ahead. <clears throat> yeah, finishing off, I'd love to just kind of um, ask you if you could give any, if you could go back to the Andrea that you were, you know, before you started healing, what, what, what are a few tips or what are a few um, insights, pointers, advice that you would give to her? That, that change is possible, you know? That transformation is absolutely possible. Like I, it's fucking hard work, you know, and it takes time, but like, I'm so fucking passionate about this stuff because it's like, it's not like just getting sober. It's, it's getting to become the person that we were always meant to be and like living accordingly. And like that, it's just through this process, I've just been able to, you know, figure out who the hell I am and, and show that to the world. And that's possible for all of us. It's, it's just, it's life-changing. It's so profound and allows us to live life with like such depth and meaning and, you know, fulfillment. So it's really about embracing that pain, you know, yeah. embracing that pain because it's truly our greatest blessing, you know? Yeah. I, I, we only, my experience, I only change unless I'm in a fucking shitload of pain, you know? Yeah. So and the discomfort it, it, becomes more uncomfortable than the, than the place you're in. <laughs> the beauty is, it's like, you know, after you, you've gone through that and you can, you have, you know, several experiences where you can see like what occurred on the other side, that makes it just a little bit easier to really weather, weather those storms, you know, yeah. we have this, we have this data of what happens when we experience this pain, you know, and it, it's always for great, great, great divine purpose, you know? Yeah. And I just want to commend you. Like, I think people who can battle addiction, whether it's alcoholism or, come here, we're all addicted to something. Every single person on the planet is addicted to something. But, um, but you know, to overcome alcoholism, uh, drug addiction, you know, these, the, mm-hmm. the more addictive substances, uh, it's so funny, like a lot of people are like, you know, when they don't test food, it's like opioids, like sugar is like opioids, but at least it's not going to make you incapacitated. But I just think that anyone can, that can overcome an addiction like that, I think you're honestly the most strongest, most powerful um, human beings on the planet because it's, it takes, just it takes someone with such strength and resiliency and, and um, just fucking badassness to pull yourself out of that shit um, and to, to walk away from that, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, but it's, it's, it's the shit later on that's the real hard work. You know? yeah. But that's, that's the only reason we have addictions is so that we don't have to face the shit, the pain, the suffering, you know? The, the addiction is just a, a bandage. Absolutely. It is. And I think that like getting sober, you know, that, that allowed, it took some time. And, and this is a common experience for a lot of people getting sober. You know, it's like you get to a certain point, you, you know, you're, you got your footing as far as staying sober. And now your psyche, you know, your true self knows that let's, let's confront, you know, the real, the real shit here. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for taking your time out to talk to me today. I loved it. It was an amazing conversation. And I'm so grateful for you coming on. Where can people, if people want to, um, you know, obviously I definitely would recommend they go check out your podcast because, you know, there's so much uh, great information and yeah, loads of stuff in it. But- adult Child Pod, at Adult Child Pod on Instagram, TikTok, and you can find Adult Child on any damn podcast platform. Perfect. I'll put it all in the show notes so everyone can um, find you. Thanks, Girlie. This was great. Thanks so much for tuning in today, guys. All the links to the information we discussed in this episode will be in the show notes. If you haven't done so already, please join our Facebook group, Let Me Be Free, The Wounded Inner Child, and post either anonymously or not what's going on for you in your world. We'd also be delighted if you would share this podcast or the Facebook group with one person who you think would benefit from the information. Be Mahaguf. Have a beautiful day. Be alone, Mahaguf. Have a beautiful day. I'd be delighted if you would share this podcast or the Facebook group with one person who you think would benefit from the information. Be alone, Mahaguf. Have a beautiful day. So much. 
Like it made me feel like I was insane because I couldn't understand how two people could be in one body. It made no sense to me. And so once I, when I started doing it myself to my own children, that mm-hmm. was when I started really freaking out. I was like, okay, I think I need to be signed into a mental institute. There was something deeply wrong with me. I have my mom's illness and I need to be kept away from my children because where the difference was, was where, where my mom was completely switching, you know, mm. she had no conscious awareness that she had switched from this bad part to this good part. My greatest fear was I was doing that. My greatest fear was that I was actually switching, hurting my kids, and I wasn't aware of it. I was going to become her. And so when I became aware of BPD and that's what I experienced in my childhood with my mom, then I was mm-hmm. able to understand that what I was experiencing wasn't the same. Yes, it was a variation mm-hmm. of it, but mm-hmm. when I was getting aggressive with my kids, I was at the back of consciousness telling mm-hmm. myself to stop. I didn't actually switch out. I wasn't completely blacked out. I didn't black out fully, whereas a mm-hmm. lot of people with BPD black yeah. out and another part takes over. And so I didn't black out fully. I was still consciously aware because I wouldn't allow that part of me to have full reign with my children the way my mother did. So that's the only reason I say that BPD was helpful for me uh-huh. because it actually gave me that understanding to realize that I didn't need to be signed into a mental institute, <laughs> essentially. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, I mean, that's how I felt about, um, you know, realizing that I was an adult child. Same, same experience for me too. Like there was just like such great relief in, in realizing that, you know, I think with the, the, um, the issue is with this is like, just, I, I think it's with social media, um, and everyone having this like dire, like desire for attention, you know? And I think that there's a lot of people out there, like, you know, on TikTok and shit, like pretending like they have these mental disorders that they, you know, they don't really have. And that really takes away from the people who actually do have it, you know? But you know what, though? Even those people, those people are suffering. No, no person who has had a stable upbringing and childhood would want to do that. Exactly. And so <laughs> if a person is saying that they have BPD and they actually don't, they need a lot of support and love because there's obviously something that they're struggling with that they need support with. You know, and obviously yeah. it's not great. It's not ideal because, you know, people might get misinformation. So there's on the mm-hmm. spectrum of healing. We need to allow for all possibilities. We need to allow for everyone to have their place. And really, we need to stop the judgment of what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, and just recognize that all is pain, whether you're in pain or you're not in pain, whether you are needing support or not in support. And if we can, you know, because like you said, sometimes when we get into the labels, we can start these fights about, you know, what label I have. My label's worse than yours. It, it can get really messy and really toxic. But if we can bring it back to even the person who's bloody gaslighting people about their labels, again, another person who's suffering, another person who's struggling. And if we can see beyond their um, the gaslighting or whatever, it's, it's just, it's all messy and it's all um, complex. But really all we are is just a bunch of people that are, as you said, idle children who are suffering that need support, help and love and kindness and to find our way through. The, yeah, the, 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 I guess the, the issue is like if they're influenced, like what, like what are the, what sort of influence are they having on other people? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's also yeah, kind definitely. of a tricky spot because people are so like impressionable too, you know? But you're going to find that across the board with everything. We yeah, I just think social media just takes it yeah. to a next level. You know what I mean? Like it, yes. just, it just changes the ball game. Yeah, definitely. And you know, I also think if we look at like say the universal and everything happens for a reason they have their place they must be there must be something in it for people and maybe the people who watch that stuff maybe their lesson is about discernment maybe their lesson is to learn discernment do you get me and to realize to realize what is um what is right and what is uh what's truth for them and what's not truth and maybe that's the lesson that they need to learn that by watching these people who actually aren't authentic Huh, uh-huh. there's something not right about this. Wait, this is a lesson for me in, in um in authentic, in discernment, in helping me to navigate what well, in childhood we are all gaslit. You know, we're all told that what isn't happening is happening, what what we feel, we don't feel. 
And so all of us, I feel like we're all having to rewire our own discernment or learn what is our gut intuition, what's right, what's wrong, and to step into our own power and our own truth. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I 100% agree. It's, um, yeah, it's, everyone's fucked up. <laughs> mm. and I think, you know? Like, I think, yeah, I think that it's just, you know, I love that we're creating and having these conversations. I don't think anything should be off topic because the more that we talk about these things and the more that we hash these things out, the more that we'll be able to um, realize no one's fucking right. No one's fucking wrong. It really doesn't matter who's right or wrong anyways. All that matters is that each of us individually get to live the life that we deserve and the life that we want. If we stop worrying about everyone else in the world, everything else outside of us and keep on bringing it back to the self. I, my biggest like kind of teaching is I'm no one's guru. I do not have all the answers. I know a lot of shit because I've been through a lot and I should have died many times. But it still doesn't mean I know what you need or what the next person needs. You have the answers within you. You are the only guru of your own life. I can help you to try and navigate and find the path for you, maybe. Or maybe not. Maybe I'm not the right person for you. But you are your own guru. No one out there has all the answers. No one out there is some spiritual, higher power shit that's going to bring you to where you need to go. Once you recognize your own power, then you'll be on the right path. Yeah, because there's no one path to healing, you know? No. Everyone's own journey, and we just have to, you know, figure out what, what works for us, you know? Yeah. And so, fin- sorry, go ahead. <clears throat> yeah, finishing off, I'd love to just kind of um, ask you if you could give any, if you could go back to the Andrea that you were, you know, before you started healing, what, what, what are a few tips or what are a few um, insights, pointers, advice that you would give to her? Um, that, that, that change is possible, you know, that transformation is absolutely possible. Like I, it's fucking hard work, you know, and it takes time, but but like, I'm so fucking passionate about this stuff because it's like, it's not like just getting sober. It's, it's getting to become the person that we were always meant to be. And like living accordingly. And like that's it's just through this process, I've just been able to, you know, figure out who the hell I am and, and show that to the world. And that's possible for all of us. It's it's just it's life-changing. It's so profound and allows us to live life with like such depth and meaning and you know, fulfillment. So it's really about embracing that pain, you know. Yeah embracing that pain because it's truly our greatest blessing you know I I we only my experience I only change unless I'm in a fucking shitload of pain you know yeah so the discomfort becomes more uncomfortable than the than the place you're in (laughs) the beauty is is like you know after you've gone through that and you can you have you know several experiences where you can see like what occurred on the other side, that makes it just a little bit easier to really weather weather those storms, you know? Yeah. We have this, we have this data of what happens when we experience this pain, you know, and it it's always for great, great, great divine purpose, you know? Yeah. And I just want to commend you, like I think people who can battle addiction, whether it's alcoholism or we're all addicted to something. Every single person on the planet is addicted to something. But, um, but you know, to overcome alcoholism, uh, drug addiction, you know, these, the, mm-hmm. the more addictive substances, uh, it's so funny, like a lot of people are like, you know, when they don't test food, it's like opioids, like sugar is like opioids, but at least it's not going to make you incapacitated. But I just think that anyone can, that can overcome an addiction like that, I think you're honestly the most strongest, most powerful um, human beings on the planet because it's, it takes just it takes someone with such strength and resiliency and, and um, just fucking badassness to pull yourself out of that shit. 
um, and to, to walk away from that, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, but it's, it's, it's the shit later on that's the real hard work. <laughs> yeah, but that's, it, sure, that's the only reason we have addictions is so that we don't have to face the shit, the pain, the suffering, you know? The, the addiction is just a, a bandage. Absolutely. It is. And I think that like getting sober, you know, that, that allowed, it took some time. And, and this is a common experience for a lot of people getting sober. You know, it's like you get to a certain point, you, you know, you're, you got your footing as far as staying sober and now your psyche, you know, your true self knows that let's, let's confront, you know, the real, the real shit here. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for taking your time out to talk to me today. I loved it. It was an amazing conversation and I'm so grateful for you coming on. Where can people, if people want to, um, you know, obviously I definitely would recommend they go check out your podcast because, you know, there's so much uh, great information and yeah, loads of stuff in it. But adult Child Pod, at Adult Child Pod on Instagram, TikTok, and you can find Adult Child on any damn podcast platform. Perfect. I'll put it all in the show notes so everyone can um, find you. Thanks, girly. This was great.